0: Coming to you live from Atlanta,
1: Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host,
2: Joey Klein.
1: Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to another great episode of Tech Talk. As always, we got three great Atlanta CEOs with us today. Um, we're going to be talking to Ram Gola uh, head Bricks. Ram, I know I just butchered that.
2: That's okay. <laughs> you want to you you say the right? Ram. Yeah, it's Ram Krishnan.
1: And I practiced it several times I before. Knew. Sorry, man. That's okay. <laughs> uh, he's the CEO of Bricks, and we're going to get into a little bit of what Bricks does. And then we're going to be talking to Dustin Wolsey, CEO of Buckle. And finally, Shep Ogden, CEO of Scout Social. All right, so Ram, let's go back to you. Perfect.
2: Okay, so bricks, but but with a Z at the end. Yes. Yes. So essentially, we when we started out, we wanted to be the foundation of uh, retail supply chain. Okay. So that's the backstory behind the brick and you know building the foundation. That's how we came into existence. And even today, like we continue to stay true to what we signed up for, and uh, we provide uh, a lot of advisory services and solutions for retail and third-party distribution.
1: Okay, so your your use of the term "we still stay true to that" makes it seem like the business has pivoted or evolved, whatever term you want to use, in the intervening years.
2: It's, a, it's a, a less of a pivot, more of an expansion and uh, you know, uh, kind of evolving into bigger things, if you will. So we started providing a lot of advisory services, uh, basically a lot of uh, you know, analytics, you know, helping people make decisions on what is right in terms of process and technology. And as we kind of evolved, one of the things we started asking a lot of our customers is, hey, you know, what are some of the enterprise level problems that keep you up at night, right? So if you boil it down, initially, the way we started was in the execution space, right? So as retailers, uh, you know, sell and they have their distribution channel, we helped them with a lot of technology implementations for a warehouse management, auto management, things like that. And uh, as we started evolving, now the, the, the bigger challenge for them was, hey, these days you know, people want a lot of products when they want it, where they want it, how they want it. It's an evolution of uh, more of the omni-channel, e-commerce, convenience economy. And in that marketplace, like there is a need for agile supply chain. So we started focusing on optimizing the middle mile logistics, right? Typically, you get a lot of product that uh, gets over from overseas on a ship. And subsequently, you know, there's the act of placing that product within your network. And then there's the final mile. But we are focused on solving the middle mile problem for a lot of the large retailers so that they can become more efficient and give customers the product where they want it in a more cost effective manner.
1: Okay, so so you're not just CEO, you're also founder. And so this begs the question, why did you have expertise in this area slash why was it an area that you thought it was worth starting a business over?
2: Yeah, so uh, basically I went to school uh, here at Georgia Tech, uh, supply chain as the focus. So that's been, uh, you know, what I wake up to for the better part of the last 20 years. And uh, I have helped a lot of large organizations with their supply chain, the likes of uh, Home Depot, Gap, uh, and other large retail organizations. And as we kind of evolved, right, so, like, the, the focus has centrally been around problem-solving in supply chain. And that is part of the reason why I started the business. Like, I used to work for other larger organizations that were solving same, similar problems. And I found the opportunity to create, like, a specific advisory services company for large organizations. And now we're evolving into a technology provider.
1: Okay, and this is, this is a common story that you hear amongst a lot of entrepreneurs, right? You start out with some sort of consulting and advisory service, you ultimately, pivot is the wrong word, you're adding all technology to what you're doing. And so that begs the question, what was the hole that you saw that necessitated some new form of technology? And two, how do you balance the two sides of the company?
2: So first, uh, like in terms of the necessity, uh, basically, you know, as you can tell, like uh, you know, we were doing a lot of the problem solving by way of data analytics, and like in a sense, we got a front row seat to customer problems, right? And that is how we kind of learned a lot of the challenges firsthand. So. One of the, you know, kind of uh, transformations in supply chain, traditionally, you know, people bring a lot of product into large million square foot distribution centers and then replenish it to the store or send it directly to customers. And in terms of shipping options, it's uh, fairly expensive, like if the customer wants it tomorrow, right? Uh, In order to do a lot of overnight or other types of uh, shipment offerings, it's fairly expensive, Or alternatively, you can ship the product to the customer in like five or seven days. And as you evolved, you know, with Amazon and a lot of other uh, competition in that landscape, the one-day, two-day, same-day services have become more of the norm and the expectation. And that is one of the problems that we learned from a lot of our customers a lot of them are continuing to solve the problem like with the same old school setup. And in the recent days, like as you probably are aware, uh, there's a lot of pivot. I mean, you're in real estate. You probably have learned that uh, there's a lot more interest in smaller distribution centers that are closer to the customers. The term that is commonly used is urban fulfillment or micro-fulfillment, right? Right in-market distribution. And with that evolution, there is a a much more focused uh, attempt in order to place the inventory right. Initially, like, uh, you know, when you bring product and uh, send it to a large million-square-foot distribution center, you don't need as much planning. Like, you are sending all of that to one place, right? So the middle mile, there is really no optimization focus. Whereas now... As you bring product to, say, a port location, uh, let's call it Los Angeles or Savannah, from that uh, particular location, where do you actually send the product so that uh, you optimize the cost logistics as well as increase the possibility of a sale? So that is the problem that we are solving. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, your question around how did we evolve, like, yeah, obviously, like, we were solving the same similar problems in advisory capacity. And now we are saying, hey, you know, we can create much better ROI and provide a continuous optimization solution for customers if we just productize what we do. So that's how we evolved into... Being a technology provider, I,
1: I mean, it, it sounds like you are essentially helping to a client to develop a location strategy as well as an inventory strategy, all baked into
2: one. That is correct.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, look the the biggest winner, not that industrial real estate wasn't already on fire, but yeah. the biggest winner of the past six months has been the industrial real estate sector, far and away. Um, they are the ones that not only just haven't been touched, but frankly are thriving in this. It, it's really, it's really distilled what you know would have been a ten-year cycle of change into you know six months in terms of just the um, insatiable demand for uh, distribution centers, e-commerce centers. You know, all you need to do is pick up the Atlanta Business Chronicle and read about the million-square-foot warehouse that Amazon just took down every other week.
2: Yeah. So, so if you think about it, right, like I think uh, uh, a lot of the adoption in this space, people, uh, a lot of the large retailers as well as other, you know, e um, retail uh, providers, they, they all realize the need for something like this. But that need has been accelerated by way of this pandemic. So a lot of the retailers that had stores, uh, they, they had to shut down the stores for like two or three months, there's no food traffic. But there's a lot of product in those stores. So a lot of them that were fairly resistant to shipping product from stores, they all started doing something like that. And then now they're all learning the potential of having that product closer to the customer and getting it to the customer either same day or next day. And as part of that, now there is a renewed interest in, oh, okay, so if I am, you know, able to do this from a store location within a mall using curbside and all that, I, I know I am benefiting from this, but maybe this is not the best way to do it, right? Maybe, you know, I can use shared distribution. I can use, you know, my own urban fulfillment center. So maybe I have to be smarter about my network strategy and product placement, And typically, right, uh, a lot of the large, uh, you know, Fortune 50 companies, if you looked at uh, an Amazon, a Home Depot, a lot of them solve uh, the problem by way of extensive capital investments. Uh Uh, Amazon probably has has, uh, about 300 distribution centers. And same similar approach with uh, a lot of the large organizations that have a lot of capital. But then if you look at the rest of the retail community, that is not a viable solution for them. They cannot just keep opening distribution centers that are capital intensive. So their answer is going to be technology. So now that I know I want to do it, how do I do it? And that is where somebody like us uh, becomes very attractive.
1: Sure. No, that, that, that is a very good point, right? We hear a lot about Walmart, uh, you know, Amazon, right? They're the type of organization that has the means and the volume to continuously open these distribution centers. There are plenty of other retailers out there that do great business, but they can't take down a million square foot warehouse no you know no, or even a half a million square foot warehouse um, and, and and those numbers sound very big to people listening, but those are you know kind of the the standard sizes that you're dealing with when you're talking about these types of organizations and so for them, I guess the question is then right, how do you use technology? Um, to place your product in the right place that is going to get customers and you can compete with the big boys that we just talked about.
2: Yeah, so so, uh, when I uh, even uh, look at some analogy in this space, I mean, shared economy is thought that is, you know, fairly prevalent in a lot of different industries, right? Like, yeah, you have uh, things like Airbnb, and now like when you look at uh, a company like IBM, when they look at their ability to flex their workforce, they look at options like Regis or Rome in order to, you know, find a balance, okay, there are certain you know people that uh, have a specific responsibility that I put in a certain place, whereas I also want some flex capacity, uh, to have the right people at the right place so so it's a similar approach to uh, the the distribution and the product placement so when we you know take over a lot of the customer data we basically determine you know what are the opportunities for Placing products, uh, you know, that are closer to the customer, Uh whether it is in the form of, uh, you know, sourcing a third party distribution location or, you know, presenting a subset of your products within your stores for the same day, next day type services. So it's it's a lot of the analytics and the continuous optimization that enables a much better full price sell through. Okay, so
1: I'm interested to go back to the middle mile um, uh, issue that you brought up before. I think that a lot of people, you know, regardless of industry, have heard the issue of the last mile. And it can relate to, um, you know, a number of different industries, whether it's, uh, you know, public transit, whether it's, uh, you know, logistics and supply chain. Um, So in the middle mile, is the model that you're referring to more of like a hub-and-spoke style operation where you have some, large center out, you know, in whatever, 40 miles from the city center and then maybe you've got 50, 75,000 square feet placed strategically, you know, five to seven miles from where maybe a greater population center might live.
2: Yeah, so so it's a, it's a combination of, uh, you know, a lot of what you just mentioned, right? I mean, it truly depends on the product and the industry but in a, in a lot of cases, right, yeah, to your point, uh, you know, the, the last mile is a problem that uh, so many people solve, right? Uh, so, so for example, if you have a store or a distribution location that is in a 10-mile radius to the customer, you have the option of using a variety of uh, services uh, like a Rody or an Uber or even uh, deliver. Uh, so many options that kind of present uh, the solution for the last mile, but... Like, you cannot, uh, uh, guess what, like, yeah, unless the product is there in that location, that last mile option is not viable, right? So your alternative is, you know, like a $35 overnight shipment, say, from Indiana to Atlanta. Or, like, even if you are a little further away in the 100-mile radius, you still have a significant cost component, so one of the opportunities, uh, you know, uh, that a lot of our customers are starting to look at is uh, just like you mentioned. Okay, hey, if I have a forward fulfillment center that supports a certain subset of or a subset of stores in an urban area, right? I can use that uh, forward fulfillment center to not only you know address a lot of the customer orders, but also faster replenishments to the store. Because now, like previously, I had a planned methodical execution for, you know, how I put product in my store and I had a methodical replenishment process. But these days, you know, I am using a total omni-channel approach where, you know, I can just take whatever product from whatever location in order to service my customer. So a lot of madness is introduced into my existing methods, So how do I react to that? Uh So that's where the continuous, uh, you know, data analytics and optimization comes in. So in that uh, middle mile, going back to the middle mile reference you made, okay, so when the product is there in Savannah, like, you know, is there an opportunity for me to establish a small, you know, 30,000, 40,000 square foot distribution center in Atlanta, one in Chicago, one in Miami, so exploring the possibilities so that uh, you can better understand your customer base and increase customer satisfaction at the same time, increasing top line sales while also being very cognizant of the bottom line in terms of uh, what it costs to get the product to the customer.
1: Okay, okay, that, that makes sense. So, um, it, you know, on this show, we're, we're lucky to have three founders on, um, and sometimes we, sometimes we have founders, sometimes we have CEOs who, have, yeah. you know, come in after the fact, and um, and as a founder, you're taking all of your past experience with you, and you've worked at small organizations and large organizations. And I am curious when you decided to, um, you know, begin on your own. What lessons you took from those different experiences in regards to how you shape a company and shape culture?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Like, I, I did not like uh, feel it was all intentional, but uh, you know, thinking back, I think there was. Uh... A lot of uh, thought process that went into where I am today. Um, so when I graduated from George Tech, one of my first opportunities was uh, running the day-to-day operations of a small eight-person company. And I believe that's where I got my entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, subsequently, I worked for a large supply chain software organization. That is where I got a lot of my consulting skills as well as uh, built my network. Then I moved on to a smaller cloud uh, WMS provider. Uh, That's where I learned the art of building software ground up. And finally, I used to be a chief architect of uh, supply chain applications for a large retailer. That's where I learned how to scale and run things in a bigger, better manner. So that's how I, you know, accumulated a lot of skills that uh, I needed in order to get to where I am today. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful for all of those opportunities and that's what has led me to where I am today. Okay. And, um,
1: you know, I'm, I'm curious with, like we're, I think we're we're all sort of coming out on the other end at this point, or at least you know getting our lives back to some semblance of normality. But as a leader, you know, how have you you know dealt with your team um, and challenges that just come with our our new environment in the in the current state?
2: Yeah, honestly, uh, really like yeah, this uh, yeah, uh, go back to the March timeline. I think it was the second week of March. Uh, we were exhibiting at a large uh, supply chain show here in Atlanta called uh, Modex, and uh, towards the last uh, day of that uh, conference is when you know all of this madness uh, happened. And uh, we were quite uh, guarded and cautious, and uh, thankfully a lot of uh, my team remained uh, healthy. But I cannot thank them enough. The the switch from You know, uh, being in an office space to working remotely. Uh, My team, I mean, I feel like they have taken a whole lot more responsibility and ownership. And uh, I think that is part of the reason. I mean, actually, we had uh, like an all hand session uh, this morning. We do that every two weeks. And uh, when I, you know, reflect back to the time in March, there was a lot of impact. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, smaller organizations were impacted. I mean, a lot of our customers are in fashion, apparel, retail, obviously, you know, there was a little bit of a slowdown, but in the middle of the pandemic, we were able to start new engagements for medical devices and cold chain. And I am also really thankful for all of the customers that continue to support us in the process, right? And yeah, the the way I described it to my team is, uh, I mean, you know, during that timeline, Yeah it definitely meant that it was going to be survival of the fittest, right? So back in that uh, April-May timeframe, we had a significant number of uh, bench strength and we had to be really tough and, uh, you know, face the challenges head on. And I had great support from my team to go through this process and we did not have to make any headcount changes and today like I feel like we have come out really strong we are in a place where we just uh, had three new hires start so from where we were in the April May time frame to where we are now it's night and day that's great and it's all thanks to the team
1: yeah that's that's fantastic to hear I mean I also think that uh, look obviously part of that is your team and your leadership I also think you're in an industry um, and a technology sector that is pretty well um, suited. Uh, in this particular moment, yeah, yeah, why, why do you think that logistics and supply chain as an industry is so strong in the state of Georgia, right? Everyone always talks about the port, and yes, of course, we have the port of savannah that 's fantastic. We have educational institutions that produce great talent, but it it's i mean very similar to I think fintech and healthcare i t it 's become somewhat synonymous with our region um, Is this happenstance? is there a reason for it?
2: So, uh, so first, uh, you know, like as an industry, I mean, uh, you know, as an industry, so long as, uh, you know, there's people that buy stuff and there's people that sell stuff, supply chain and logistics is here to say, right? And uh, so particularly when you talk about Georgia, I mean, I think we, yeah, particularly Atlanta, like I call, uh, you know, Atlanta to be like the Silicon Valley of supply chain. Uh, Primary reasons, I mean, you know, like you referenced the port, uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, there's a good bit of cost efficiency, obviously, you know, in running distribution in the uh, Southeast compared to like a West or other places like that. Right. And uh, on top of that, I mean, you have the best uh, of infrastructure, obviously, some of the best uh, supply chain organizations. Uh, You have uh, the UPS here, you have the coca-cola delta home depot a lot of large complex supply chain organizations and the one of the central reasons for atlanta being very successful uh, i believe is also going back to the the talent pool that we are able to create because yeah a lot of that attributed to georgia tech uh, even my own organization is more a lot of georgia tech And uh, basically, because of that availability of the talent pool, uh, a lot of the supply chain technology providers have a significant presence in Atlanta. Either they were founded in Atlanta or they moved to Atlanta. So in a way, it creates, I mean, at the end of the day, like, uh, you know, if you have the best minds solving the most complex problems in a certain location, I mean, that becomes like a... You know, hub for everything pertaining to that industry, just like, you know, uh, Silicon Valley is everything for software and uh, a lot of, the, you know, direct to consumer type uh, software. Now, so for supply chain, large scale enterprise problem solving, Atlanta has become a hub for that type of industry.
1: Sure. Well, look, lots of different reasons, but clearly it's, it's great to hear that everything is going very well for you and the team. Um, if there are folks listening, retailers, supply chain executives that want to learn more about BRICS, that's B R I C Z. Yeah. How do they do that?
2: So they can do it in a bunch of different ways. Uh, one is uh, they can go to our website and uh, place a request to gather more information, or they can email us at info, I N F O, info at BRICSBRICZ.com. Or they can call our number listed on the website and we have a good bit of, uh, you know, sales and marketing initiatives. People can follow us on LinkedIn. Yeah. If they are a retailer looking to solve complex problems, definitely we are, you know, the right people to solve and we have a lot of references.
1: Great. Okay, Ram, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Joey. Okay. Dustin, how are you doing over there? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Okay, so Dustin, you are with Buckle. Um, Your your organization deals with driving, uh, hence uh, hence the name Buckle, but you're really a little bit more than that. So why don't you give the people listening a bit of an executive summary of what Buckle does, and then we'll dive deep.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Buckle is a financial services platform for gig economy workers. Um, And very specifically, we advocate for our members or who are purchasing insurance, whether it's credit and vehicles, and then also assisting them in various ways, various government programs and things to uh, really help them. Okay, so for, for the uninitiated
1: who might not understand why there is a need for an insurance product specifically for gig workers, what's the hole in the, uh, the system that necessitates your existence?
3: Yeah, really, quite simply, in the financial services world, there's personal and there's commercial. And until the gig economy really started showing up, there's been no middle. And you have to live in one side or one silo or the other silo. And when Uber and Lyft started coming into the world, people started using their personal cars to make money and provide gigs or provide fares. And that turned that personal insurance and that turned that car for a period of time into a commercial risk. And when that happened, personal auto policies didn't cover that situation. And that was the hole that Buckle started to solve. Why is it
1: that the personal insurance auto policies are not at a place, we're talking about very large reputable organizations, well-financed, why are they not at a place where they can offer
3: a product like this? Again, so they're old legacy companies that um, have done what they've done forever, first of all. And second of all, when a commercial risk gets introduced into a vehicle, for example, the, the whole premium and risk structure change. So if I'm just driving around by myself in a vehicle and no one's in the back, it the risk is different than if I have passengers in the back. And unfortunately, sometimes accidents do occur, people can get hurt, and that risk needs to be priced appropriately.
1: Okay. And organizations that the legacy organizations that we're talking about, for whatever reason, whether it's bureaucracy, whether it's uh, not wanting to innovate, stuck in your own ways, there's obviously an opportunity for an organization like yours. And so to be clear, you are, not necess- you are not a an insurance broker, you're not a middleman,
3: you are literally insurance provider. Yes, we are actually an insurance carrier. And what we really do differently than, you know, the big people that we all know of the state farms and the all states of the world is we don't use credit when we look at our customer base and our members. So when we dismiss credit and using other data sources to underwrite and price our customers or our members, we're able to be more effective, more nimble, and uh, really provide a service that they need. Okay. So someone listening to this might hear a statement that says, we don't use credit
1: and might freak out, right? I mean, how how does a a business not use credit to
3: assess someone's risk level? So when you say other sources, what are you referring to? So... You know, as, as the gig economy and terms like insure tech roll out, there's all different types of data that's flowing around through our cell phones and uh, various data sets. So what we do is we look at things about how people are using their vehicle, what people think passengers think about the driver to assess risk differently. Because, you know, quite frankly, credit's discriminatory and we just don't believe that it is the best way to look at our members. And, you know, so... If we can use unique data that segments them in a way that enables them to get, the, you know, priced competitively mm-hmm. in things that they can afford that protect them in a way that is credible, we're, we're helping our members. Okay, so
1: you could literally look at, you know, reviews and star ratings for a driver, you, you know, on Uber or Lyft platform.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's in everybody's best interest when, you know, incentives are aligned. Uber, Lyft, and everybody wants the highest rated stars. Because if you're in the back of a vehicle and someone runs a stop sign, you don't want to be in that vehicle. It's a bad experience. So we're looking at those type of, you know, metrics and things like that to price and rate our drivers. And we're using crowdsource data to make this happen. And people today are more and more involved in social media, whether it's rating things in Google, rating things in the back of an app, that using that type of information, we can really hone in on these drivers.
1: Okay, so obviously this makes, you know, a lot of sense for drivers on the Uber or Lyft platform. I believe you have partnerships with both those organizations. Um, What other
3: type of gig economy workers could this apply to? Absolutely. So, you know, it's we started in livery, which is moving people around. And we're branching out into food delivery. So there's the DoorDashes, the Postmates, and the Instacarts of the world. Mm-hmm. It will then apply also to the task rabbits of the world as we have you, you go to a store and uh, you know someone needs to hang a television and a task rabbiter comes in and does that. And all these gig workers are starting to evolve and the world is becoming more and more delivery, more and more on demand. And individuals have very unique skill sets that can pop in and pop out at their own time to do various gigs. And we're there to help provide the financial services to make them be successful.
1: Okay. And so when we talk about, um, you know, again, this was, it was somewhat illuminating during our initial conversation because these are things that we often take for granted that we don't even think about. Your example of someone coming to the home to hang your TV, right? All of us, you know, have probably done this with uh, you know someone we found on next door to help us you know clean our gutters or you, the TV example that you used. These are people for whom we really have no background information on whatsoever. We have no conception and don't really think about what could happen if some sort of incident occurs on our property, um, and we sort of blindly enter into these relationships where I don't want to say it's sort of blind trust. It's it's almost it's somewhat
3: ignorant, so we're not really thinking about the worst case scenario. Yeah, that, no, that's correct. So before the gig economy, you would contract with a company, and the company would send in an employee, and you would assume, or most likely that big company would have the proper coverage. Now, as people are getting dispatched as individuals with various skills, we're just taking for granted that the coverage is there and that these individuals have the proper insurance. So what Buckle is, doing is making sure that these individuals have the coverage they need but they have to have it in a fashion that they can afford because mm-hmm. they're not these huge corporations that are designed to do this and these gig workers might only do two or three gigs a week or maybe it's one a day and they don't need this massive policy that you know a large corporation would have so we work and bring this down to the individual customer or the individual member of ours to make it affordable that protects both themselves that protects the customers that are purchasing from them Mm -hmm. and also the companies that um, are dispatching them sure so um
1: do you you have different types of policies for folks that maybe let's say they're driving full-time for uber as opposed to someone who does this you know a couple times a month is it segmented
3: by frequency or is it kind of a one-size-fits-all yeah in that example um We create a policy that covers everybody. Now, there's no doubt about it that we would agree with you that the longer a car is on the road, the higher likelihood there's going to be an accident. So time on the application is a factor of price. But we can cover someone that does one or two rides a week or someone that does it full time.
1: Okay. Understood. So you, you've got an, an interesting background because you've sort of come to this from both a very standard insurance background as well as a technology background. You've worked in a number of different industries that have led you to this place. Um, you're also Atlanta Bored and Bred, so much so that your, your father owned Creative Loafing. Which That's correct. For um, you know, everyone listening from Atlanta, hopefully uh, remembers that as like the best alternative magazine that you know, we've seen in the city. So I'm just curious about your, your journey um, along this path to buckle.
3: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, growing up in Atlanta is this is uh, my home, and it's after I, school I came back here. So this is I'm very passionate to my city. Hopefully, my children will uh, grow up here and be the same and be sports fans. But you know, after uh, after being at Acme and uh, traveling around the world, um, I, I was just looking for something new to do and uh, found the insurance space and, the, and the, very specifically insurance distribution fascinating. So I got into the insurance business. And the next thing you know, I'm insuring taxis and limousines. And Uber started in the black, Uber black space, which was commercial insurance. Um, so I started riding in the back of limousines and black cars, selling policies to drivers individually. Well, fast forward a couple of years later, Uber rolls out their UberX product and its personal auto in the Uber platform. And that was the idea that spawned Buckle, is how to solve that problem. But being from Atlanta, this is one of the largest markets for, you know, quite frankly, anything, if you think about the, you know, the airport, the size of the city. So it was just a really easy market to start uh, buckling because of the capacity of drivers around here.
1: Well, and it really is, it's a, Atlanta is a poster child for what Uber and Lyft are trying to accomplish, right? We are a city where public transit, much to my dismay on most days is really lacking to put it nicely. Um, and so the ability, and and you know, it's not like taxis are roaming the streets and you can just hail one like you can in a New York City or Chicago. Um, and so the ability to be able to get around easily without a personal vehicle to the point where you know you even hear of couples where they've you know been able to ditch a personal vehicle because of it um, so use it you know in places where you might be in a situation um, where you are drinking. Um, it, it's just th- this is this city. Like I think most Sunbelt cities are the exact test case of why these services exist.
3: Well, absolutely. But I think you compound it with the airport, with the large convention base that's sure. here, that it, it, it's really a natural spot for these companies to thrive. And it, and it's, you know, take COVID, and you're seeing delivery start to take off more and more, and it's never going away. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and quite frankly, I think we're going to see more and more people flock to Atlanta from some of these other cities as it's just an easier lifestyle right now down here as well.
1: I I, I would agree. I think that, um, look, I've I've thought for a while that Atlanta is a winner in terms of just demographic trends throughout the country. And certainly if, you know, I'm, I'm going to put a bit of skepticism on the mass migration outside of, you know, big cities like San Francisco or New York City, but assuming that there is some sort of noticeable impact, Sunbelt cities are absolutely going to be winners. I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So that 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 that's a that's a TBD but you know already or what the number nine Metro, I think, you know, set to surpass Philadelphia in a couple of years. So,
3: yeah, but then our strategy will then go into the next, you know, major market. So we don't look at as a state rollout, but you know, it's Illinois to be in Chicago and the likes.
1: Yeah. So, so that's a, that's another interesting um, issue as well. So, you know, insurance is very much regulated by states. um, If I'm that correct. That's correct. Okay. And so we're talking about, I mean, it's It's a fascinating, but I imagine also somewhat maddening prospect of getting this out everywhere in the country that you want it to be and dealing with a different regulatory structure in each new rollout.
3: Yeah, I mean, every state, the way I like to think about it is it's like its own unique country with its own rules, uh, which are different from state to state, uh, with its own regulatory regime that's different state to state. So no two states are exactly alike. So that makes it definitely challenging. And then based on that, you know, it affects our rollout of how we price things because you know there's different. You know, one state has one set of limits, and the other state has a different set of limits, and it and it just it's the biggest challenge that we face on a day to day basis. It's not just like I can go, hey, I want to open up in Tennessee tomorrow and go. It takes substantial planning and a substantial amount of resources just to launch.
1: Yeah. So, are you able to share any information about the next areas in which you're looking to launch?
3: Yeah, we, uh, in November, we're looking to be in Tennessee and shortly thereafter we'll be in Illinois and the Midwest throughout there. Okay. So our goal is to be in 20 to 30 States by the end of 2021.
1: Yeah, that's that's a big one. But um it sounds like you've got a really good uh team with regulatory prowess uh you know at
3: at, at your beck and call who's able to navigate these waters. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's cha- it's a real challenge. Uh the regulatory comp- compliance is uh is a battle that's faced every day.
1: I I'm curious about um Other countries, right? You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes we can be a little bit uh, America focused, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that these sort of services exist all around the world. There's plenty of major markets outside of the United States. What have they done for this issue?
3: Well, you know, the United States is unique because, you know, there are independent contractors right now here. Other states have, other countries look at employment laws differently. Um, while I don't have a lot of experience in telling you what's happening, for example, in London or mm-hmm. Paris or Singapore, um, they all have, just like America, every state has their own, they have their own rates rules. And, you know, when we're ready to go into those markets, we will we'll figure it out. But there's no doubt that what we're seeing in the gig economy here exists everywhere on the planet?
1: Sure. Obviously, yes. Like right now, an organization of your size needs to focus on being really good at, you know, one thing and that one thing being rolling this out to as many communities in the United States as possible. That's right. Yeah. So right now, we've mainly been talking about a B2C, you're sort of B2B and B2C, right? It's like you have partnerships with these, with a, with a business, but ultimately your consumer is the end, um, you know, buyer of a service. So, but but I am curious. You know, as you guys transition to more um, locations, do you see this as something that is
3: a a pure B two B play as well? No, yeah, I think I, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? We're definitely B two C where we sell to our customers, but we're very much also B two B two C where we work with uh, the delivery companies or the transportation companies and figuring out what their problems are and fixing some of their challenges for the drivers and leveraging them to help distribute our product mm-hmm. to help market our product uh to help validate our product because if we're able to help lift for example um a lift driver we're actually helping Lyft corporate as well because we're helping lower their insurance costs sure. which hopefully uh in turn can allow their drivers to earn more because if Lyft's saving money on insurance it can it, it you know all tides rise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, how are you going about approaching new organizations that you want to work
3: with? Yeah, I mean, we have a sales force that legitimately calls on these type of companies, right? And um, they're evolving so fast, right? Whether it's, you know, national players, but there's plenty of regional companies out there in the delivery space that are popping up. And these are real problems that they're all addressing. And usually, all these companies, insurance is the second thing that's that they think of, but when it becomes real, it becomes a real problem or a real challenge. How about,
1: yeah, it, it really does tend to be just this somewhat rote uh, you know, problem that we think of as this kind of boring thing in the background that, you know, it d- doesn't terribly need much attention. But when, when you're talking about it on this scale, the financial impact is truly daunting.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we all carry insurance, whether you're a company, whether you're an individual, and all types of insurance. So it, it, it is a real cost. It's a real cost of goods sold for the drivers. And it's a real cost for these corporations. And And we're looking at insurance that's not the traditional like workers comp policies. We're talking a a unique segment that's evolving and that the industry is finally starting to catch up and regulations finally starting to catch up with these these gig economy companies. And we're there to to really help them evolve with it.
1: And I would imagine that you probably have a pretty easy to use technology platform for folks that are signing up.
3: Yeah. What's awesome um, with when we were talking about data is how do we make it as frictionless as possible for people to apply? For insurance, um, and if we, you know, if you look at auto, you, you probably don't know what your VIN number is right now, but you know, a, a delivery company does. And if we have an integration with them, you know, do you want to quote? You want to buy? It's click, click, and the data is just passing back and forth via APIs really efficiently. So where. You know, if you were trying to get a quote for just some auto policy on the Internet, you'd have to have all this information. We usually pretty much can do it with one click, you know, log in and boom, and yeah. there's a price. Well, well, th- this is the problem generally with insurance
1: in that, look, especially from a personal perspective. Um, obviously, look, if you're, if you're a large business and you're, um, you are hold a number of very complicated policies, it's a bit more of a human process. Um, but I mean, I think this is why you see services like Lemonade and Policy Genius becoming so um, interesting because just the process of like calling up a state farm or an all state or trying to work with an insurance broker, it can be a little bit of a black box um, and it can be a little bit challenging with a lot of friction. And so to be able to just go on a platform for someone that doesn't need some very complicated, um, you know, financial product related to insurance. Um, I imagine the technology piece is very important to make it easy to work with you.
3: It is it's so critical to make it easy, but at the same time, to make it simple for our members to understand, right? And still, to this day, insurance is complicated, yeah. but it's so important. And, you know, we're covering, for some people, their most important asset, their car. So making sure that they're, A, comfortable with us, B, understand what they have and how it's protecting their assets. Because no one wants to use insurance, but they're really happy when it's there, when something bad happens. And yeah. so how do we help protect these these assets for our, our members.
1: Yeah. Well, look, that that's all very exciting. Um, thrilled that you're
3: you're building this here in
1: Atlanta. And
3: if people want to learn more about Buckle, how can they do that? Yeah. You can find us at uh, www.buckleup.com. Um, you can info at buckleup.com and always feel free to hit us up on LinkedIn. All right. Dustin, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. All right. Shep, how you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm good. Okay, so so
1: Shep, um, I I have to give everyone listening a disclaimer that in in my initial conversation with you, and we're not that far apart in age, I have never felt my age more. (laughs) (laughs) We 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 are going to talk about um, uh, a lot of entertainment and social media concepts that um, if you're out there and you think that you're very in the know, um, I think you might be a little bit surprised. So. Uh, Just a disclaimer, Uh, follow along, but don't be surprised if uh, your age is showing a little bit. So at heart, you consider yourself an entertainment company, right?
0: Yeah, a mix between like a media and entertainment company. You know, when we first built Scout Social, we were trying to build an agency, but we very quickly realized what we were doing was we were entertaining massive audiences. So a little bit of, of a background on that is like, we built and we manage the Instagram account Humor on Instagram. So Humor, you know, we like to think of as a place where people can find comedy, of course, or memes or, you know, skits that they might enjoy. Um, and so that's really like the bread and butter of like how we build this company is around concepts like that. How do we entertain people, make them laugh? Um, but then we really build our business around media. So, you know, impressions and views and how do we engage and influence an audience at massive scale? Um, And so what we've used humor to do is really build out a thousand or so different relationships with pages, you know, very similar to humor. They might be other, you know, meme pages, for example, or they might be TikTok influencers or celebrities. And what we're doing is we've kind of become like the middleman, you know, kind of like a brokerage or a network where, you know, a brand like TikTok actually, who's a client of ours, and we'll we'll kind of probably talk about that today because there's a lot of drama around that right now, but... You know, they'll come to us and they'll say, Hey, we want to reach 200 million people, all Gen Z, younger. How can we do it? And so we're going to go take their content, mm-hmm. and it's all entertaining content. Um, that's really what, what fits us well is entertaining content. And then we're going to go use our partner network. And we're going to place that content, you know, in a format of memes and swipe up videos and things like that um, to make sure that they get the scale they're looking for, they get the influence they're looking for. I, I
1: like that term broker. That's, I think, a very good way to understand what you're doing. So you're, you're kind of a media broker, right? Mm-hmm. Someone is An organization is coming to you with a target audience they want to reach. And you're basically helping them figure out through different platforms and pages how they go about reaching those people to best accomplish their goals and who they want to get in touch with.
0: Yeah, no, that's
1: that's exactly right. Okay, um, let, let, let's let just dive into TikTok because um, I have a lot of questions for you about it. And I think a lot of people listening do. Uh, look, I imagine that what the average person sees about TikTok is that the president doesn't like them, that there is something that TikTok has to do with China and that might be a bad thing for the U.S., and that there's some sort of bidding war going on. Okay, yeah. So let's kind of illuminate exactly what, why the reason that this company has gotten so much scrutiny and probably dispel some myths um, and misinformation that's out there.
0: Yeah, you know, this is... Near and dear to my heart right now, um, given the fact that it is where most of our audience lies. Right, we 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 have very large audiences on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter, but TikTok's been one of those that's been a client of ours for two years, um, but also is a platform that we use very heavily to promote. You know, much of our other clients through TikTok influencers, um, you know, trends, building songs, and. You know, I think one of the biggest problems with it is there's, it's, it's kind of just xenophobia, honestly. It's just scared because it's another country. It is China, and I think that needs to be taken seriously because they could be, they could be doing, you know, malpractice here with TikTok, but there is zero proof of them actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really become a target, you know. It's just become a target to kind of go after. And so, I don't know if you saw the news this morning, but just a couple hours before this podcast today, you know, they said that it is gone as of as of Sunday. You know, that the uh, the White House is making it illegal to download, um, even though there is this current you know Oracle deal being you know happening yeah. and being structured right now. Um, so we'll see what actually happens. They're not going to completely, um, I think, take away the app yet, but you're not going to be able to install it anymore. While they have you know this little time period of trying to work that deal out. But yeah, both TikTok and WeChat are both under that kind of ban.
1: That is... uh, Okay, so... Uh, we, we we don't really get into politics on the show, so we're going to sh- we're going to shy away from that, okay? But I don't really understand how can the United States again? This is this is an actor that has not really been proven to be a bad actor, right? Okay, it's not like there have been you know espionage tactics used by the Chinese government via TikTok that are out there to be seen. So what does the White House go to uh app, you know the iTunes Store and Android and basically
0: say? Um, you can no longer list TikTok on your platform? That's exactly what they did today. Um, they're telling them that as of Sunday, they're not going to be able to do that. And I, you know, the thing is, the things, their, their basis for this is one, the risk, There, you know, there could be risk that maybe they could do this, but the risk that they're seeing are built into so many other apps that are built here in America. But I, I personally, I think, you know, I think these tech companies are going to fight back as well. So I think the Apples, the Googles, et cetera, because this yeah. is overstepping into just their territory.
1: Yeah, that—that's that, that what is. I don't really see a universe in which organizations the size of and which serve so many people around the world as um, you know, Android phones and uh, you know, Apple would actually say, oh okay, U.S. government, we are going to remove this wildly popular app with
0: no evidence from our platform. That, that's right, but they did do it in India. So India is a really interesting one where really? um, they did that a month or two ago. I don't remember the exact date, but they did take it down the platform there whenever India banned it as a country. Um, but there was a lot more tensions between India and the Chinese government at the time, so that that was really why they did that. Clearly, we're living, you know, like you said, not going into politics here, but we're clearly living in a very high-tense area right yeah. now between these two countries. And so I really just think that's where it's become a target. You, you see, you know, you see this new generation Facebook, essentially, that is just taking its place in the young generation. I mean, it is the topic of everything. I mean, it is what's breeding culture right now. And um, that's scary to think that a potential bad actor is the one that created and built that. Um, and, you know, one of the, their bigger concerns is, well, they might not even you know be taking that data It's like, what could they influence, right? You know, once you've got hundreds of millions of Americans on an app, um, it's as simple as continuing to show them this content that we don't want them to go down the road of. Um, So for example, it could be violence, right? You could just try to bring out violence violence in someone by showing them them that over and over. But again, it goes back to there is no proof of that happening at all. Um, And then especially with a deal like with Oracle, you know, we're putting the protections in place where that can't happen. But even with that, you know, being said, they're, they're scared of it.
1: Yeah. So okay. So so, what are the details of the deal with Oracle? I'm sure a lot of people have read. There are different suitors. Microsoft was involved. Walmart was involved. Mm-hmm. Oracle seems to be the winner, although no formal deal announced yet. It sounds like. So what the the government is trying to ban until some sort form of TikTok's operations can come under
0: the control of a U.S. corporation who can then better control. No, from what I understand um, this kind of came out as I was on the way here (laughs) so I haven't got to really dive deep Um, they're just saying it's going down and they're going to give them a little bit of timeline to see if it works and if it goes down I'm assuming there's going to be a big fight there I'm not sure what's going to happen the Oracle deal it's Again, I haven't dug deep enough to really give a, a broad explanation. As a disclaimer, um, but it's not a typical acquisition. So they're essentially going to become like the data partner, where Walmart and those Microsoft yeah. who are looking to acquire it. Um, Oracle is going to be more of the the USA tech partner, and I think that's one of the things that also you know frustrated you know the government is like, well, we'd rather just own it entirely. Yeah.
1: All right, let's. We, we, we want to focus on you a little bit more than this, but that it is just absolutely fascinating. Um, okay, so you, you already mentioned a number of the organizations that you work with. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what is the typical profile of you know a, a client of Scout Socials? Why are they coming to you?
0: Yeah, so we're kind of expanding right now, so I'll kind of start where we are and then kind of where we we're hoping to head. Um, most of the clients we're working with are the smaller, you know younger companies, not necessarily smaller, but younger companies that really understand growth hacking and culture hacking. And, um, and they're willing to take a risk where memes might not be typically as brand safe, where Coca-Cola might not want to be, you know, on a meme page, but we're working with brands like Cameo, uh, Twitch, uh, TikTok. And then, you know, a lot of the different major entertainment, entertainment companies. Like I, I work with most of the major record labels, for example, to promote some of the larger artists in the world and they just understand that something i was having a happen having a conversation with a client of mine the other day and it, it was all around the idea of why does this stuff work why why are they my clients why does this fit and it, and it came down to you know tiktok memes these younger influencers they are the you know, the epitome of like culture builders. So if we can get something talked about in memes or if we can get something talked about on TikTok, it is very culturally relevant. So that's our goal, you know, with a lot of our campaigns is, hey, um, how do we go promote this song and get it talked about or this artist and get it talked about in this younger generation across social media? Because if that is happening organically, then we know it's happening in the real world too.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of technologists and marketing agency at the same time.
0: Yeah, we like to think of it as a, as a media network because we, we don't, other than, you know, it's all impressions driven. Sure.
1: No, look, I, I understand yeah. you, are, you are very different from a typical marketing right. ad agency, but what I mean is that your mindset is one of, how can I get exposure? How exactly. can I reach an audience? And how can I do that in a creative and interesting way? Yep. One hundred percent. Same same way that a standard marketing ad agency ad ad agency would have to think, their output is obviously extremely different
0: from yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you started this in college, right? Yes. So my my uh, my business partner started in high school actually, and I started a similar company in college, Um, and then we met each other. We're doing a few projects and decided, man, this could be cool. Just kind of pull these together. so that's that's kind of where it started. and That was about three years ago now, almost.
1: Okay, and I've I've interviewed a number of other folks um, that have really just gone straight from college into the quote unquote the real world. But you know, their startup is really the first job that they have ever mm-hmm. had. You know, besides some you know whatever scooping ice cream, delivering pizza, and stuff like that. And um, you know, we talked a lot about culture and company with Rom before. And I am curious as someone who, you know, this is the first real organization you've ever been a part of. You are launched into a C-level role at a very young age. Uh, You are, you know, managing people that are your age or older. And so I am curious how you go about traversing those murky waters of being a leader, forming a culture, um, forming a culture of respect, but also camaraderie at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. It was something we really had to figure out. I know whenever we first started, um, Bailey is 23 and I'm 24. So you're right. I mean, everyone we're hiring is our age or a little bit older. Um, and whenever we first started, that was really daunting. Uh, so, you know, one of the first things we did is we started talking to a lot of older people, right? That's something I very quickly realized is I am in a space of social media. My youth is a huge asset. Whenever I go talk to CMOs, CEOs, media buyers, um, they love the fact that I'm young because I understand this culture. But that can make it hard to build a company, right? Because I don't have that experience. So I very quickly realized that. And I started going to, you know, people that had mentored me in the past, started asking for help, um, getting advice on how to best do that. And then after, you know, taking on an older partner as well into our company who's you know in his 30s has built a successful company before he really helped advise us on how we start structuring that and now it's just come to a point where like you said there's just mutual respect um across our team we got a team of about 15 now and there's just there's just a respect there and it, it doesn't matter that we're the same age or i might even be younger um you know, we're, we're still their leaders. And, and that's, that's the way we try to do We don't necessarily try to just tell them what to do, but we try to like help lead this company. I mean, and it's something that, you know, we're still, we're still figuring out every day, but it, it's something that we do focus on a good bit.
1: Yeah. Um, no, look, it's a, it's, it's, it's a constant evolution and a challenge. Um, but it seems like you guys are doing the right thing trying to yeah um you and i talked about a concept when we first met about virtual influencers and i was very fascinated with that concept can you go a little bit more into what that is
0: yeah sure so um one of the best ways to dive in for anyone listening is checking out a website that we created it's kind of the hub of the concept of virtual influencers and it's called virtualhumans.org um So virtualhumans.org and some of the other projects we're working on all sit around this concept of CGI, computer-generated virtual influencers. So whenever you think about the Kardashians of the world and these other major celebrities, um, you can really relate to them in in a way where you can follow their life story on there. It's not necessarily a relatable life, but it's something that you can follow on social media. But there's one thing that's always true, is you're most likely never going to get to speak to them or work with them or really meet them in person. Um, so there's, there's been this new concept over the last three years of these three to four years of, of computer generated influencers living on Instagram, living on TikTok, living on just social media as a whole, building audiences as if they're in the real world. Um, so little Michaela, for example, it's M I Q U E L A, I believe, um, is created by a company called Brud. Uh, they're backed by massive VCs like um, Sequoia, Spark Capital, Founders Fund, and they've raised $30 million to build it, essentially, you know, virtual celebrities. It, it's crazy. And, and now they're, you know, producing music in the real world. They're doing brand deals with uh, Calvin Klein, um, Samsung, all these massive companies. And so we just saw this as a really cool opportunity because, you know, we are growth hackers. Again, like what we know how to do best is we know how to build and grow audiences across social media. So we partnered with a small um a small team here in Atlanta to, to actually create a virtual influencer a computer generated influencer. And he's now the, um, the second largest virtual influencer, you know, on Instagram behind little Michaela. And, you know, we're, we're proud of that because we're still bootstrapped, but his name's Knox Frost. He's got right under a million or so followers. Um, and one of the craziest things about this is it's just, it is crazy. So, you know, whenever we do something, for example, we partnered with uh, the world health organization in March to, uh, you know, let people know that this is serious, you know. His whole audience is a younger, you know, Gen Z male, so like they're the ones that weren't taking this as serious as at first. So, like, we wanted to, you know, put messages out there that are like, hey, take this serious, social distance, um, you know, stay at home, etc. And the whole world saw it, right? Yeah. Forbes featured it, uh, Fortune featured it, uh, Mashable, BuzzFeed, Insider. I mean, all of the major news sources featured it, and that's one of the really cool things right now about virtual humans. where, They can engage an audience at scale, um, but they are also one of the easiest and quickest ways to get someone's attention because right now it's just so different.
1: That that is just wild. Um, that not just the scope of the influence, but also I mean, like, did you did you ever think that you'd be working with the WHO on a you know <laughs> pandemic messaging?
0: No, we also <laughs> partnered with uh, Rock the Vote to uh, to tell people to go vote. Um, it, it's it's really funny. It's, it's one of those things we really try to tell you know with the character we created. It, it's all about positivity. It's all about self improvement. It's how can we make the world better. Um, we try to put that into most of the the media brands that we're creating. Um, we've got quite a few at this point and and that one in in particular is just, it makes a lot of sense to do that. Um, but no, definitely not what we planned on doing whenever we first kind of created it just kind of was an open opportunity that made a lot of sense. Sure. Uh, You know, you, you have somewhat of a similar issue as, as
1: Dustin and Buckle have in that you have a B2B side to your business and a B2C side to your Mm -hmm. business. Obviously you have, you know clients of yours that are businesses but you are very much a consumer facing um organization and i'm just curious how you how, how you form the strategy for those two very different forms of
0: outreach yeah so it's interesting so most of or nearly all of our revenue at this point is driven on you know clients you know client campaign bases um you know, just working with different people. So we do have a small sales team that's constantly doing outreach, building these relationships with these, you know, record labels, with these entertainment companies, with these different other brands that might find this interesting. Um, And then we've also taken on a ton of great partners to help us connect on that area. Um, But one thing that we've realized is that we also have a massive audience to influence. We've got about 12 million or so followers across our media brands in house. And then we broker that, that network I was talking about brokers about a billion or so total followers. So, we're now looking to continue growing our own media because there's a lot of ways that we can monetize that directly through the consumer. Um, right now, it's it still is business driven, but you know we're excited about. We launched a show recently. Um, we call it a show, but really it's just a concept. It's a man going around, you know, interviewing people, and it's called uh, Excuse Me What. Um, it's one of the faster growing shows on the internet, you know, launched it three, four months ago. It's got 250,000 followers on Instagram, uh, 80, 90 or so thousand followers on YouTube. But then people are also, you know, paying to watch it. Um, it's one of those ways that we don't have to, you know, work with a business to monetize that asset. Um, but then we can also, you know, plug in brand sponsorships when, when that makes sense. So it's a bit of a, a balancing act right now where we're still, really using this brokered network that we've built and then also the owned media we've built to work with brands, do campaigns, but now we're really also moving forward towards a direction of like, how do we build an asset that is super entertaining that people watch on Facebook and YouTube mm-hmm. and uh, Facebook and YouTube are paying us because they're plugging the ads in because that's something we haven't really been focused on yet. So uh, it,
1: it, is, is that kind of what your next 12 months looks like in terms of where you're really trying to focus on building this organization?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, most of that, that team of 15 is built around, you know, that campaign fulfillment, um, some creative concepting for our clients. Uh, how, how do we execute? How do we report? How, how do we get them the, the results they're looking for? And really, that's definitely, I'd say the next phase, like who we're hiring for right now. It's all like creative, you know, creative, con- um, creative director type people, right? Yeah. Creative leads. And, and how do we go and say, you know, we can, build and grow an audience on social media faster and better and more efficiently than anyone else in the world, I believe. Um, And we've proven it a few times at this point. So how do we take that ability or product and start plugging it into brands and you know shows and media assets that we own and create. And how do we monetize those? So that that's one of my really big focuses right now. Is as I'm speaking to different business leaders, um, you know, I'm looking for you know advisory. Essentially, I'm, I'm I'm talking to a lot of different media execs and entertainment execs and influencer execs, um, seeing where there's room for partnership. Do I need to go build a studio to go launch these shows, launch these media assets or can I partner with a studio? Mm -hmm. Um, That that is definitely one of our next big phases though um, now that we've kind of built the first part of our business and it's growing.
1: Well, and and one of the things that you and I have discussed is that um, an organization that typically has the profile of yours that interacts with the type of businesses um, and entertainment, uh, you know, uh, products that you're discussing Mm -hmm. has typically not been here in Atlanta. Right, they typically right. feel like they have to be, you know, frankly, in a, in a New York or Los Angeles. And you guys really are dedicated to making this, you know, not just a force to be reckoned with within that industry, but um, sort of a, you know, flagpost um, planted here in Atlanta for this type of concept.
0: Yeah, no, and, and and I think there's a few reasons for that. You know, most of our team, uh, we did hire our first person recently that lives. Uh, we have a few contractors that aren't in, aren't in Georgia, um, but we did hire someone on a more serious role that's in Texas. But we like the idea of Atlanta being in this home base um, for a few reasons. You know, there, there's something that I've heard a lot. I'm, I'm not originally from Atlanta. I'm from southern Georgia. But I moved to Atlanta right after school. I was in Atlanta a lot while I was in school. I went to University of Georgia, go Dogs. But, um, you know, I've always heard and, and I see it still that, you know, Atlanta breeds culture. Like a lot of culture starts right here in Atlanta. Sure does. Um, and that's really what we're doing is we're trying to build culture. But not only that, there's a lot of lot of ties to entertainment right here, right? There's, you know, all of the major movie studios are here, which is so cool. And it's such an asset that we haven't really tapped into, but but we're looking to now. But, but with those studios being here, you know, granted, there's a pandemic going on right now, so they're a bit not you know, used as much right now, but there's a lot of celebrities coming in through here too. So there's a lot of good assets for us to, you know, tap into really build a new celebrity company, you know, type company here in Atlanta. Um, but then one of the other big things is that it's kind of fun being right here in Atlanta, not in LA. All of our clients are in LA and New York, mostly, um, some, some overseas, but you know, the, Atlanta gives us a place to be the ones that are different, the ones that are putting our foot ground, like put foot down and, and really trying to build something right here. Where if we go to LA, you know, there is no one that's doing exactly what we're doing, but there are, are you know multiple companies that are doing things that are similar. Um, and so that's one of the things we're really excited about doing this in Atlanta because I think it'll. I think as we continue to build, as we continue to do exciting things, it'll bring people to Atlanta. Um, and you know, there's already a budding entertainment scene across music and production. And the only thing it's going to fuel that.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, it, it sometimes is just best to be kind of the, the shining star, um, you know, and not just the sea in a one amongst many, not that, not, not that what you're doing isn't unique, but, but yes, if you are in a different market, it wouldn't be necessarily as apparent. Right. Yeah. Um, well, look, all, all that is super exciting. So if people want to learn more about you, how do they do that?
0: Yeah. So we're, uh, I know we've talked about a little bit, we are going through a rebrand. So I think you know, one of the best ways right now would be to connect with me on LinkedIn, Shep Ogden, um, you know, go to scoutsocial.co. That's our website. Um, we will be launching a new one here shortly. So, um, definitely would love to connect with anyone that's interested just reaching out to me directly. Great. All right. Thanks for coming on Shep and everyone. Thanks for tuning in to tech talk. Thanks guys.